The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. He's back. I've got my that's spine. A trip. Got that's a short spine. Trip. I've got my orange crush. What is that from? You've said that a couple of different that's times. That's um, REM, I believe. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know it's so. a song lyric, but uh, yeah, it's I, REM. Uh, I've got the disc somewhere. You know, in a good box. Georgia band. It's in a box three, three, three or four steps away from this seat. Uh huh. Is it unboxed or I mean, is it a normal box or is it still packed? We just moved my parents over the weekend, and uh, dude, I mean, did they leave uh, defi- a Define normal box. Yeah. Okay. Never mind. All right. <laughs> I got I got boxes labeled books. I got boxes labeled CDs, DVDs. It's in one I of think the that's ones. That's what he was asking. It's a moving box. It's yet unpacked. It's a moving box. It's a moving, it's box. A moving box. I haven't yeah okay. unpacked right. All right. A stationary yeah, moving box. Okay. All right. It's a moving. It's a moving box that was moved and now is no longer moving. Out moving. You lead a very sophisticated life, Jeb. Not really. It's just the illusion of sophistication. <laughs> Welcome, folks, to episode number 54 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation the, podcast. The illusion of sophistication. We're recording this Is episode. Is that like the illusion of aviation? All right. See, it's just way too early in the episode for me to have completely lost control, so uh, let me try and grab it back. We're this, recording this, this episode on Wednesday Which evening. presumes you even had control to begin. November 7th, 2007. It's turning into winter up here in New England. We had our first frost last night, the... Uh, very late this year, but uh, uh, I don't think you want to talk about weather. No, I don't want to talk to you about weather. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Let me say you hello. Just to put in, you can just put in a link to last week, which was a link to last week, which was a link to last week, which was a link. You know, you know where this is going. Let Has me anybody ever, ever seen the movie Defending Your Life? To my friends who are here in the virtual hangar with me, uh, that that annoying voice is Jeb Burnside. Jeb is a, an aviation journalist currently serving as editor in chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributing editor to Avweb Biz. And he's talking to us from sunny Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. Sunny, warm, breezy, relaxed, laid back. I'm fine. Uh, I hope you folks are too, Jack. Still um, living out of boxes, though, apparently. Still kind of living out of boxes. I'm, I'm slowly whittling it down. Um, um, it's, it's not too bad anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And also with us this evening in the hangar is Dave Higdon. Dave is an aviation photographer, a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine, and he's sitting in Wichita, Kansas. Hi, David. It must be getting cool there, right? Oh, man, it's been uh, crisp. The last three or four mornings, uh, this morning, 32 at dawn, yesterday, 31 at dawn. Uh, like you're up at dawn. Oh, yeah, man. I, you know, dawn brings the paper. Uh, <laughs> Dave, you've got, got her well-trained then. Dave is That's still right. up at dawn, right? 
if it did unusually unusual even for kansas standards wins the last few days the only thing that's kept us from having some pretty good frost so uh i've been up at dawn um, once or twice but only because her husband was coming home <laughs> and also with us in the hangar this evening is a uh, is a, a friend of ours for over the past year certainly a friend of the podcast and someone who we met face to face for the first time in oshkosh and that was very pleasant uh steve tupper is with us steve is uh steve also known as Stephen force he's the host of the popular aviation podcast airspeed he's a private pilot a civil air patrol captain and when on the ground he's a technology lawyer and he's talking to us from bloomfield hills michigan hi steve how you doing you guys have any idea how weird it is to be kind of walking around my study, listening to my favorite hangar flying podcast, and have it talk back? Yeah, there you go. The voices in your head. The voices in your head, man. The voices in your head. That's right. true, true. What a what a nice thing. Uh, you guys let me uh, come in the hangar. I'm, oh, we've uh, been thinking about it for quite some time yeah. now. And, Steve, uh, no, thank you for joining us. Thank you for taking the time. And uh, and uh, you know, not only that, but for all your support and kind words over the over the life of this podcast. It's yeah. uh, it's it's very uh, um, uh, rejuvenating for us. Yeah. We sincerely appreciate it. We're glad you're here. Yes, and, and you, before, you remember to bring the beer, right, Steve? <laughs> I'm I'm drinking Michigan iced teas tonight. Michigan iced teas. How does that differ from a Long Island iced tea? Um, it differs in as much as it's pretty much just iced tea. It's not very sexy. Uh, okay. okay. All right. Okay. And uh, before we move much, much further along, I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, <laughs> and a new media producer up here in Boston, Massachusetts. We're going to have to run a pool. Yeah. To, to Side, how far into the podcast it is, you remember to introduce yourself. It's all over the place these days. It is. So, hey, you so, know, I think that may be a record for the last couple that is, months. That is a record, yeah. Uh, I, I'm, I'm working hard at this, huh? So, Steve, welcome to the hangar. And uh, whenever we have a newcomer into the hangar, we like to learn a little bit more, a little bit about their, their aviation background and their, their sort of regular background. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your flying and how long you've been flying and so forth and so on. You bet. Uh, I'm a private pilot, uh, airplane, single engine land, and recently instrument rated. Yeah. In like, as in like two weeks ago. Congratulations. Congrats. That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah. yeah that's... Well, hey, I was just listening to 53, and I was I was just parking my car um, down in the in the parking structure uh, at like six this morning, getting ready to walk in the office, and uh, I hit the the part where where you guys offer the congrats, and that was that that, that was absolutely fantastic. Um, the uh, I took my first instructional flight uh, February 21st, uh, 2001. Uh, that was actually two weeks to the day after STS-101. Uh, the Space Shuttle Atlantis went up, and it was not uh, not coincidental. Um, the the it was certainly by design. Um, I became private pilot in February of 2004. Uh, I'm perhaps a lot like. Lots of folks in as much as, you know, by the time I finally got life and family and everything to the point where I could really do the blitz to finish off the private pilot certificate, I, uh, I had nearly triple-digit hours, and that's fine. Um, almost the same thing. I've added on another 70 hours since then, uh, uh, about 50 of it under the hood uh, for the instrument rating, about 15 total actual, um, which is one of the really nice things about training in Michigan. As long as you've got an instructor who's willing to uh, uh, take you out in reasonable IFR, you can get some actual IFR, and there's really no excuse not really to have is. some actual by the time you sit down with the examiner. Oh, it's really um, helpful. Really helpful. Yeah. But that's, I, I, I would question, I wouldn't question the rating per se, but I, w I would question the uh, wisdom of the double I who refused to give their instrument students some, some actual duel before he or she got the rating. 
That would give well, there, me some pause too. Yeah, yeah. There, there's so many. There, there's so many days here when you can actually get about a thousand foot thick overcast, maybe fifteen hundred foot ceiling, a thousand feet, and then it's you know essentially VMC on top. If you're not taking your students out and, and shooting approaches in that, I you're just blowing opportunities. Exactly right. right. Exactly, exactly right. right. So, what's your home airport? Uh, I fly out of Oakland County International Airport, uh, unless uh, our friends in California become confused. That's uh, actually near Pontiac, Michigan, um, uh, Kilo Papa Tango Kilo, uh, PTK. And mm. it's, uh, it's mainly uh, two east-west runways, uh, uh, niner, or, yeah, niner left, niner right, two seven left, two seven right. Uh, there is a... Uh, one seven three five, and I always get the reciprocals messed up, so you guys feel free to. But I think it's one seven three five is VFR VFR day only. It's an interesting airport, especially for instruments, in as much as the wind mainly blows out of the west. Uh, but the there is only one the uh, only one front course on the airport, and that's for Niner Right. The reason being, there's a lake off the end of two seven left, and that mm-hmm. is normally where you would put the the. Uh, the the localizer equipment, mm-hmm. and you know, as opposed to either get another 150 feet of runway, or you leave it empty and put the localizer in. I'll t- I'll fly back courses any day in exchange for right. that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I t- I'm sure no one's ever you know put an airplane into that body of water. Um, within the, within the last year, in fact, within, within the last year, somebody came up short of the. Uh, uh, short on nine or right. I think it was a light twin, but the the guy popped out, slogged ashore, and you know, <laughs> and, and 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 met the equipment. No, oh, that's that's good. That's the way to do it. The, the 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 beach is actually a a landing point that I think about when I'm coming off the end of uh, either of the two sevens. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So what was the uh, now that you're done with it? The whole process of taking the IFR training. What, what was that like? Was it what you expected? Was it different? Was it Harder, easier? Um, I myself liked it a lot better than the private. Um, I'm a better book learner, and I just don't have the kinesthetic sense that I had when I was 24. I mean, you know, there's not those kids out there that, that duly and properly fly, fly circles around me. I and mean, most of them are, have been my instructors at one point or another. Um, but the, the instrument rating was something where I could, you know, really prepare uh, from the books and at home and, you know, fly some simulator just on my time, figuring things out and then go get in the airplane and do it. Um, and I guess the other thing is everybody calls it the toughest ticket. Um, I believe them. And it is, there's just nothing to compare with one of two things in particular. One of which is flying broadside into a battleship sized cumulus cloud at 5,000 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, the other of which is, from a more technical standpoint, you, you, you take off, you put the hood on at, at uh, you know, 400 feet AGL, you fly for an hour and a half and, you know, maneuver, talk on the radios and, and you know, uh, get real close to the end of your bandwidth. And then at the end of it, you pop up the hood and there is runway 28 at Traverse City, 200 feet below, and you're dead nuts on center. That, there's just nothing like that. Yeah, I, I call these airplanes weather modification machines. think about it you get in it you close the door you manipulate the controls for a couple of three hours you you stop you open the door you get out the weather's changed that's right you're right particularly particularly when you're traveling 
For, yeah, that's what I'm. That's basically what yeah, I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I mean the but, long the, the long distance runner stuff. Yeah, uh, um, and, and Steve, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Oh, big time. Some of the neatest feelings in the world have been. I've never shot an approach in ILS to absolute minimums anywhere. I mean, I've not done a 200, you know, uh, three eight mile or something like that, but I have a cup had a couple under 300 feet uh-huh. and under a mile. And what a neat feeling. You break out of the clouds and it's raining and it's gusty and it's crappy and there's a runway. Maybe not dead ahead, but there's a runway crabbing distance away and you kind of go and unpucker a little bit and, and, and put it down. And it's like, man, the number of people in the world out of all the people that have oh. ever been in the world that can do that yeah. is, yeah, is that's, so small. I, I figure – uh, and Dave and I, I think, have had this conversation, but uh, I kind of figure there's, yeah, m- m- we've all we've had every conversation, but uh, <laughs> I, I kind of figure there's about a quarter of a million people in the world who can take a light airplane, fly it through instrument conditions for a couple of hours, and land at the other end legally, safely, um, proficiently. Mm-hmm. And as I say, there's only about a couple, uh, a quarter of a million of them in the world. But you look at the, the number of instrument-rated pilots in the U.S., and you look at the number of instrument-rated pilots around, you know, in other countries, which is, you know, far, far smaller than in here in the U.S. And, you know, maybe the number's off. Maybe, okay, maybe it's a half a million people. It's still uh, It's still small, per, pretty small darn number. small. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something to be very proud of. Yeah. Um, uh, I remember um, um, my ex-wife talking uh, kind of off the cuff several years ago. She says, you know, it's really kind of neat. You, you get in the airplane, you take off, you enter the clouds, and, um, you know, a couple of hours later, you know, you come out of the clouds, and amazingly, there's a runway in front of you. And uh, she she was kind of impressed with all that. Well, Jim, you remember when you and I met up at Atlantic City for an AOPA oh, yeah. Expo years ago? Oh, yeah. You, you, you'd come up through weather. I came from Wichita to Jeffersonville, Indiana, and only saw horizon the first 600 feet and the last 300 feet uh-huh. of a 600-mile leg. Sure. And, uh, and then the next morning got up and took off uh, in fog with a mile and a half. It was coming up from zero zero. Uh, broke into the clear. Ten miles later, was back in the back in the junk inside the eggshell, mm-hmm. all the way to Atlantic City. And those helpful folks at Washington Center, Dulles now you're, approach. National you're being approach, facetious. You're being <laughs> to the max. And Baltimore. I approach, know that tone of voice. They made absolutely sure that I saw every bloody square inch of the spaces between the Bravos vectoring me through weather to get me over to Atlantic City. It's like, son, thanks, guys. You, you, son, you know, I really enjoyed the you tour. You, the, scenery was, the, the scenery was just stunning. Gray, 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 <laughs> and uh, gray. Yeah. That's cool. Well, Steve, it's quite an accomplishment, and we congratulate you again yeah, as we man, did in it, the past. Um, now the now the now the key the key is to use that puppy to death. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is nothing better to... than keeping it alive the the real way. Yeah. And I, I, I get a I get a boat load of email that's you know, hey, Steve, congratulations, and I love all those, but 
something I absolutely didn't expect was uh, from all the instrument jocks out there is, yeah, now try to keep current. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, keep, and, and, keeping current is certainly a challenge. But, you know, one of the ways to do that is, is to go places. And, of yeah. course, these, these days it's increasingly expensive to do that. But, uh, you know, combine business with pleasure or just vacation or, or whatever else. You know, I, I always felt that, you know, when I was going somewhere in the airplane that really the purpose of this trip was to go somewhere in the airplane. I forget the destination, how long I'm going to be there and what I'm going to be doing. Uh, and that's kind of the way I looked at it for a long time and still do to a great extent. Um, but anytime you do go somewhere, file IFR, yep. fly the system, uh, get comfortable with it so that it's second nature. Um, and, uh, of course, you know all this, but I'm, I'm kind of really talking to the audience here. Um, get comfortable with it so that when it really counts, when the chips are down or, or uh, when the weather is really down the tubes, you don't have to worry about the system part of all this. You, you can worry about the weather. You can worry about you know keeping the shiny side up. But um, um, it, it's it's not that hard. I, I know people, you know, nowadays who've been flying instruments for, you know, decades, literally, and uh, they get the heebie-jeebies when when they have to go VFR. VFR? You mean you want me to fly without without a clearance? Well, yeah, kind of. I've noticed two categories of instrument pilots over the years. Uh, and it didn't really catch on and, and, and until I had my ticket and I was working. I got my ticket, and then I worked on really becoming an instrument pilot after I got the ticket. Yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the category I like most and the category I like belonging to most was the, 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 the group of pilots with instrument ratings that looked at it as the ticket to ride. Yeah. Within certain limitations, there wasn't a day that they couldn't look out the window and go, yeah, I can still go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can still go. Yeah, I can still make this trip successfully, safely, comfortably, and go out there and do it. You know, the exceptions being big ice and big electricity. Uh, and then it doesn't make any difference, equipment, ratings. You know, it, it when it turns into you don't want to be there red on the radar screen, you, you yeah. shouldn't go. Yeah. But the other category, guys, discouraged the hell out of me. They were the, I used the instrument ticket as a last resort. Yeah. And, and, it, it, you know, it's like, well, you know, it, it, don't use it unless I absolutely have to, unless I absolutely positively am trapped or, or, or uh, uh, need, need to go somewhere, you know, life and death, dire straits. Uh, otherwise, it's too important to use casually. And it's like, what? What? Mm-hmm. Had a guy flew out of the same airport that we used to fly out of and and, and Jeb and and and, and uh, Jack and others may have heard me mention maybe once or twice Ponca City Oklahoma and the monthly <laughs> fly and breakfast now Ponca City Papa November Charlie has an ILS and one Saturday morning getting ready to depart Augusta it was marginal VFR at Augusta Kansas three off uniform and most definitely IFR but with, you know, above uh, cutoff down at Ponca City. So, you know, we call up flight service. Uh, we file an IFR flight plan. Uh, we leave talking to Wichita, uh, get handed off to Kansas City Center, go down, hit the VOR, fly the procedure, boom, we're down there. And, and the only people having breakfast are pilots with instrument tickets. Now, back in Augusta, all these... Group. 
back in Augusta were all these nummies waiting for the weather to clear. And I don't mean in nummies in an insulting way. Yeah, who are you talking about here? <laughs> Except a couple of them had a couple of them had instrument ratings. And when they showed up at Ponca City after the weather cleared, one of them looked at me and said, "You done already?" Oh, yeah, we're just sitting here having coffee with these other people. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You came down IFR? I went, yeah. You filed IFR to go to a breakfast? Yeah. Doesn't that seem a little frivolous to you? <laughs> You're abusing the system, Excuse Dave. me? Excuse me? WTF? A frivolous? I get a chance to go to breakfast, file IFR, shoot a real ILS? My only disappointment was that I couldn't file IFR, and I couldn't get actual instrument conditions going back. Uh, otherwise, it would have been two approaches to help maintain my currency. But, gee, many Christmas. The best thing you can do with it is make it work for you. Use it. You'll get better. It'll be more comfortable. Like Jeb says, when the chips are really down, you won't be sweating bullets that you don't remember how to do this stuff. That's right. So congrats. Go for it, man. Yeah, Steve. So it's quite an accomplishment, and uh, you've really come a long way since the very beginning. Um, as a matter of fact, in, in, in one way, it's, it's impressive that you stuck with it, um, and that's because you had happened to you uh, during your primary training what I always thought would be one of the most traumatic things that can happen to a student pilot. And uh, that is that uh, in the midst of your primary training, your uh, flight instructor was in a plane crash and died. And uh, what was that like? How, what was that like? It, it was, it was weird. It was, uh, uh, many people would just give up at that point. It would just freak you out. Right. I mean, I don't know. Did it? Uh, the, oh, very much. Um, and, and in fact, uh, a buddy of mine with whom I started flight training quit at that point. And I, you know, you can't blame the guy. Um, you know, we're each married, we each have kids or, or I was about to have a kid. Um, and the, it was June 21st of 2001 summer solstice. And, uh, my instructor and another guy were flying a, uh, Masco Mustang II experimental aircraft, uh, very hot, uh, very high roll rate. And um, Josh had been tailwheel rated for a couple of weeks. And for whatever reason, after the second takeoff, after touch and go and runway six at Ann Arbor, Michigan, that's ARB, um, I would apparent stall and spin on the turn from uh, upwind to crosswind. Uh, the airplane actually hit the airport fence, didn't quite make it to State Street. And uh, unfortunately, Josh was killed. So the, the, the thing I remember most vividly, and this, the, the dream has always been a little bit bigger than the fear. Um, sometimes that margin gets pretty thin. But the thing I remember most is having, go- <laughs> is having to go home and tell my wife. Her name is Mary. She is absolutely wonderful. And, and this is one of those places where that I will never forget. I you know, went upstairs and said, Hun, um, Josh got killed. I got to go to the airport. And there was never a serious... She was there to talk about it if I wanted to talk about it, but there was never, never a serious question. I mean, she's getting larger by the minute, baby on the way, the whole mess. But um, I, I kept going, and long, long and the short of it, um, very much missed Josh. I had to switch schools, uh, mainly because the, both of the guys were CFIs at that particular FBO. Um, I didn't know the other guy. I understand he was uh, as well, if not more, loved than Josh. And, you know, frankly, I mean, Josh was well enough loved that everybody who started his ground school over in Pontiac migrated with him to Ann Arbor. I mean, it's, it's, it's as though, 
uh, Monday nights from Pontiac during the ground school just switched to daytime in the summer over in at Ann Arbor. Um, so That's everybody cool. was, it, it was, everybody was yeah. very blue. The, I think the school had some like five instructors at the, at that time. Uh, all of a sudden you cut your instructor staff in, in the worst possible way. So I went next door to a willow run and, uh, managed to solo, uh, two and a half weeks later. So that, that was a horse that, uh, I firmly believe you either get back on immediately or, you know, you, you spend a while kind of sitting on the fence staring at it. And, and it it's helps. only going to get worse if you do that. Uh-huh. Another, it, another it, thing it, here, here, though, too, Steve, is uh, your wife sounds like a keeper. Oh, my uh, God, is she? I, uh, guys, I have, I have done nothing to yeah. deserve that. I mean, I've shaken the hand of one sitting president, and that is because I was there as a poor hanger-on of my illustrious spouse. There is none better. Uh, that's great. Does she have any sisters? <laughs> Unfortunately, no. Oh, cut it out, Jeff. Still, Every time you make these kind of comments on the podcast, you call I me know. up the next day and say, cut it out, please. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a good thing if she did, you, you and I would have had to have a private conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, you, you got you to understand, it's a, it's a large Armenian family, so there are cousins out the wazoo. Oh, huh. The cousins would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> you also I'm changing the subject right here. We, we you, like cousins. You also <laughs> You also Steve have a really cute kid. We met uh it's Cole, right? Yeah, That's he's, he's, he's met, very needed. Just just seeing the two of you, you know, bouncing around Oshkosh like that, that was very refreshing. Well, you half freaked me out at Oshkosh, man. <laughs> well, no, I I thought you, were, you you got into that I think a couple episodes ago where, you know, people recognize you by voice. And yeah. I, I I knew you'd be generally in that area, so I was kind of on the lookout, both eyes and ears. But you know, as soon as you said something, hey, it's Dave. Yeah, it's Dave. Yeah, normally yeah. it's like, oh God, that's Higdon again. That's right. Uh oh, here comes Dave. There you Run. go. Here we go. Shit. Stop talking about it. Here he comes. So Steve, and and another great accomplishment. We're going to move on to regular aviation news any second now. But uh, another great accomplishment, Steve, <laughs> um, in your aviation life has is the Airspeed Podcast. Um, it's a great podcast. Uh, I scan the list every week and I say, oh, I need to listen to that one. I need to listen to that one. And uh, um, it's a great podcast. Uh, enjoy it a lot. You've interviewed some great people over the... Uh, how long have you been doing it? A couple of years, um, right? Coming up on... I'll, I'll be two on January 18th. Uh-huh. And I'm actually... Be, much of the stuff, especially the features and so on, are scripted. As are, you know, and, and some of the interviews have actually been good enough to, uh, uh, to transcribe. Uh, and actually working on putting together a book of stuff. I was going to ask you um, about that. Yeah. So, uh, so that's that, you know, working with that, uh, probably going to publish print on demand, stuff like that. But the long and the short of it is that it continues to amaze me how many people will open up to our fledgling medium. Even if you have to explain to them what a podcast is, <laughs> um, yeah. who are some of the guests you've had that kind of stick out in your mind? Um, Probably the best were Dr. Patricia Coings, who is one of the nation's leading experts on motion sickness um, and who doesn't mind making jokes about it, accepts it for what it is and for the danger it can be, and uh, is developing uh, uh, treatments for that. Um, G. Gordon Fullerton, uh, who was Apollo 17 Capcom, uh, was also shuttle pilot and commander. And the reason I got to talk to him is he's one of the guys that fly the, uh, the, the Boeing 747 uh, shuttle transport aircraft. Uh, I mean, those were, and, and had a chance to talk to Alan Klatmeyer not long ago. There's, um, talked to Michael Mancuso, and then had a chance in a subsequent episode to go fly with the guy. 
Um, I mean, that's it, it continues to amaze me. Although I'm trying to make it a point after every episode to you know that the the the, the write up is good, the production value is as good as I can make it with the limited amount of time I have. Uh, people are opening up to our medium, and uh, it's kind of incumbent upon, upon all of us. And I see it in, in a lot of the aviation podcasts that people are really making a serious effort and uh, turning this into a really worthwhile medium, which is by, by way of sort of bringing it back around to, uh, uh, I will tell you guys that this is, without, without a doubt, my favorite hangar flying podcast. And uh, just any time the little dot lights up next to uncontrolled airspace is a good day. That's nice. Thank you very much. Thanks. Uh, we're, we're not only a, a, a floor wax, but we're also a dessert topic. <laughs> there you go. Okay. And well, we can, uh, you can toss us into your basomatic uh, and drink this straight from the blender. That's right. Will it blend? Will it blend? Well, let's see. Now, what's going on out in the, uh, in the rest of the aviation world? Uh, we were talking earlier about the fact that uh, winter is beginning to take hold in some parts of the country. And... Uh, what you know, we've, we've talked. We talked about this a year ago, a little bit, but let's kind of revisit it for a few minutes. What are some of the things that people should, that pilots should be taking into consideration? Pilots and and or airplane owners, which is a sort of a vague distinction, should be taking into consideration this time of year to kind of prepare for the the winter. Well, you know, a couple of things. One, um, the good thing about winter time is the airplane is likely going to perform better. The air is denser, um, so the engine is is getting is making more power. Um, the wings and again the, the uh, uh, control surfaces have denser air uh, against which to push and pull, so the airplane is just going to feel better at, 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 uh, at the same indica- well, at, at certain speeds and certain uh, certain uh, regi- regimes. Um, you're going to get more power out of the out of a non uh, I'm sorry a non turboed or normally aspirated engine. Um, that's the good stuff. Uh, uh, some other good stuff. Uh, uh, generally, the air is is clearer. Uh, the, the haze and the, the humidity of summer and, and and sometimes in fall, depending on where you are, is gone. Uh, so winter is a is a is a comfortable time or a, a a different time, if you will, to be flying. And uh, I kind of I kind of like it. Um, the downsides. Um, uh, well, one one more. One, well, it's it's cold. One one more upside. Very very rarely will you encounter a, a thunderstorm in the in the winter time. But uh, very rarely. Uh, um, I have I have seen a, a a thunder snowstorm before, and that was kind of. Uh, uh, and I had not been drinking. I, I'm I'm uh, I, I. But uh, no, we've uh, seen we've seen it out here. Yeah. We've seen it in yeah. Tennessee, and uh, uh, it's weird. Yeah, but we uh, snow coming down and thunder and lightning. He, Thunder and lightning and snow all at the same time, and um, you know, we're not in Kansas anymore, so to speak. Some of but, us are. Yeah, some of us are. But um, you know, the performance in 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 the um, uh, all that is is the good side of winter time. The downsides, yeah, it's cold. Um, so you you need to prep a little bit more. You need to uh, uh, take a you know certainly you need to preheat the airplane. Especially if it's been sitting out. My rule of thumb is, uh, if it's 40 degrees uh, or colder, the airplane needs to be preheated. Um, I basically talking about warming up the engine block here right, when he says right. preheating the airplane. Right. Um, um, when I say preheating the airplane, I'm talking about in, uh, my airplane. I'm I'm very fortunate. I have a uh, an electric um, preheat system already mounted to the engine. All I have to do is run a drop cord out to the cowling 
and plug it in. And uh, a few hours later, you know, it's just a low, a low amperage kind of thing, low wattage kind of thing, and it just slowly starts warming the oil pan and each of the six cylinders. Uh, after several hours, um, the engine is is warm to the touch. It's ready to go. The oil's warm. It's thinned out. It's it's ready to flow throughout the engine. Um, but that's really only part of the equation. Um, the cockpit. Um, the uh, the instruments, um, you know. Ideally, you'd stick the airplane in a heated hangar overnight yeah. be- before you, you flying it. Can, it. But it can be it can be hard on gyros, yeah. suction pumps. Uh, you know, Jeb was talking about preheating, and and I, I'm I'm a believer in the same rule of thumb: forty or below. Yeah. Uh, in my case, I would uh, hire uh, if I couldn't get the airplane stuck in a heated hangar from my non-heated hangar. Uh, I'd have them use the uh, the propane-powered uh, blowtorch dragon that blows hot air in, in through the uh, bottom of the through the cooling exits of the cowl mm-hmm. and lets it come up through the bottom of the engine and and out the uh, cooling inlets on the cowl. Uh, usually, call the airport about an hour before I had planned on arriving so that that puppy had time to run. Uh, you want to make sure you got the right viscosity of oil in the engine if you're sure. running a single vis oil. Uh, you know, if you are, you might want to seriously look at some of the multi-vis aircraft oils that are out there. Uh, you know, they've come a long way and, and can provide some other benefits. Uh, maybe your aircraft engine has a, uh, a provision for a, uh, a plate to go over part of the uh, airflow to the oil cooler to prevent the possibility of oil congealing in the cooler when it gets a long way from the heat source in the engine. Uh, you know, if that's the case, you want to be mindful of the temperatures that uh, are recommended for using that. And remember that those temperatures can, particularly this time of year, when we're more than midway through the fall by the calendar and the days are starting to get pretty bloody cold at night but they can still get into the 60s and low 70s during the day uh you need to be mindful if you're going to be flying in the morning or the evening uh that you can uh, see some pretty serious ambient temperature changes Mm -hmm. uh not only along the route but if you're doing even a local flight Uh, and what would be the effect of that in your flight well you could wind up overheating the oil if uh, yeah. you took off on a day with the where the temperature was below uh, the uh, maximum for having the uh, uh, plate on the oil right. cooler, well, and, and well, have another, it warm up later in the day where it, it needs to be off of there. Yeah, another thing is is you know let's say you're traveling uh, and you're leaving you know Massachusetts or whatever, and you're coming down to see, Florida, and you're coming down to see me in Florida. And it can be, you know, 20 degrees, and, and you, you must have, or the manufacturer recommends the winterization plate on the engine or on the oil cooler or whatever. And you get down to Florida, and let's say it's 70, 75, 80 degrees, uh, you're going to have hotter oil than you really should. Uh-huh. And okay. that's, that's, a, that's an operational consideration. Yeah. Uh, uh, so so you've, you've, you certainly have some mechanical <clears throat> or operational considerations with cold weather. Um, <clears throat> But uh, you know you need to you need to dress for this too, okay. That's true. This this is not you know going to the beach in in August, 
This is uh, uh, flying in the wintertime. And, you know, God forbid and something happens. And whatever it's going to be colder up high. It's, it's going to be a lot colder in the, at altitude. But, you know, and God forbid, you know, something happened. Uh, but people have been known to find themselves on the ground in an off-airport landing uh, without a whole lot of shelter and without adequate clothing. Um, so it doesn't hurt to, you know, throw, you know, some warm clothing in the back of the airplane during the wintertime and leave it there just in case. It doesn't hurt to, you know, kind of when you're walking out the door, think about the worst-case scenario when you go out on a Saturday afternoon in the wintertime. Um Take some extra, you know. Take some. Take an extra jacket, or you know, take your heavy jacket with you. A blanket. Um, a blanket. Mylar you know. blanket weighs yeah. nothing. Will provide a lot yeah. of thermal protection. Yeah. That's uh, right. And, and little and even things that, that with the airplane itself, uh, like the gyros, cold cockpit, cold gyros, tough on bearings, mm-hmm. tough on the vanes that uh, you know react to the suction pump. Yeah. Yeah. So you're going to want to give yourself a little more time for those things to come up to speed and get up to operating temperature, uh, which means sitting on the ramp longer than you might normally. Uh, you may see temperature, uh, cold temperature uh, reaction response on liquid crystal displays. Uh, they can be slow to come up and show full intensity and full color when they're cold. Mm-hmm. So you're going to need to build in a little time to let them warm up, too. Uh, and, and things that you might not otherwise ever think of, like uh, uh, the oil breather on your engine. You know, engines, they warm up. Uh, you know, everything gets hot inside, inside the oil, inside the crankcase. But then when they cool off, they pull air in from the outside. If there's humidity in that air, it condenses into moisture inside. And it, it, there have been numerous occasions where that moisture started blowing out the oil breather and collected in a in a bend, froze up, blocked the breather, and led to an engine stoppage because of the buildup of pressure in the crankcase, or you know something worse like blowing out the uh, the oil filter can uh, and really leaving you high and dry. Uh, no oil, engine running, bad bad things happen. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, if you if if you operate an airplane regularly, if you own an airplane, you, you really wouldn't be uh, ill advised to touch base with your A and P, and have little things like the breather checked out, and uh, the oil cover, uh, the oil cooler plate if it takes one, uh, the oil viscosity you're running. Uh, and other than that, be smart. Yeah, Steve, you've been known to have uh, winters up there in Michigan. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, any particular experiences as far as winter flying up in your neck of the woods? The the most beautiful flight, the the most beautiful VFR flight I have ever had was my long solo for for the private. Um, I mean, it was in January. Uh, it's one of these things where you get to the airport at seven. It's pitch dark. You pre-flight with a uh, I mean, I have I have an entirely different set of clothes that I wear pre-flighting. Um, <laughs> I mean, just guys, there is nothing colder than avgas on your hands in a in a wind in Michigan in January. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, you pre-flight it like that. You know, the the sun finally peaks out, and it's just one of these, you know, absolutely still gorgeous, painfully blue day, you know, blue sky days. Um, there's, you know, it's it's been that temperature for a while, so. 
you know, I, I try to keep the eye out for emergency landing spots, and all of a sudden it's no longer just cornfields. There are bodies of water that are in a pinch um, a, a, a valid landing site for you. The, you know, I, I love flying in the winter. I started out training in the winter and then soloed in a much uh, in an aircraft with a lot less power um, in like 5,000 foot density altitudes at a field elevation uh, of like 700 feet. So, <laughs> like that as well. And I guess the the other big thing about winter flying is, at least in as much as most of my experience has been uh, has been VFR up till this point, despite the the fact I've done a lot of stuff under the hood. Um, even if you're going out VFR, file a flight plan. Yes. Um, my my buddies in the Civil Air Patrol, be it air air teams or ground teams, nobody likes finding a pilot sickle. Uh, it makes it <laughs> so much easier for us to find you during that hour uh, or six hours or 24 hours. I mean, there's just a precipitous drop in survivability in terms of the amount of time that uh, it takes us to find you, especially in the winter, whereas you may have injuries and other stuff going on. Now you've got hypothermia, and uh, it's more difficult for the ground teams to get out to you. Uh, please, 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 you know, file the flight plan. Uh, I myself, and, and the big objection a lot of people have is, you know, hey, if I file a flight plan, it's it's going to be a big mess if I inadvertently forget to close it. I have actually neglected to close flight plans on two occasions. I'm not proud of it, but I will tell you that the uh, the folks that run the program um, are will, will bend over backwards not to get angry with you or charge you for anything if it's an honest, honest mistake, because they would much rather have a flight right. plan and find you. Uh, when it comes down Absolutely. to it. So if I can put out that plea, especially for anybody that's uh, you know flying over, for instance, northern Michigan, you know, it helps to draw a line and have an idea of when you opened that thing uh-huh. uh, and how much fuel you had on board. We've so talked, I, about, can, yeah, we've talked about this on the podcast in the past, and that uh, we've talked a little bit about it, uh, what to do to make yourself easier to be found if you have to land out. Um, as a, as a uh, Civil Air Patrol uh, uh, participant are there things that is it different in the winter time are there different things to that you should think about when you're on the ground in order to help you getting found i mean other than the flight plan thing draw arrows um, in the snow i don't know i, I uh... if if you can take I, and i'll tell you and i i have i have not had time i mean all the flying i've done has been primarily in training and, and getting up to this point uh-huh. um so, so I've not had a chance to do what's called the form five process jeb i'm sure you're familiar with that although it was probably oh, yeah. form it was probably form four when you did it <laughs> um, two and a half. Uh, yeah, I only went to four, man. I'm I'm cutting you the slack. But uh, as but Jeb can, but these amps go to eleven. Yeah. <laughs> as Jeb and a lot of other folks can tell you, um, a, a broken airplane or you know yard debris. Yeah. And there, there are any number of things that look like a broken airplane. If you can think to bring with you something orange, big and square. Uh, that maybe you can lay out. Uh, certainly bring yourself a survival kit. The Mylar blanket is a great idea. Um, with the idea being, you know, get at least the bare necessities and, you know, throw some cliff bars in there. And, you know, if they spend all summer hot in your flight bag, you know, make it, you know, when you, daylight savings changes, you replace the batteries in your, in your, mm-hmm. your smoke detectors and you go out and you buy new high energy bars. Um, but have that available. In terms of finding you, um, I mean, get something orange, big, and square if you can. Um, Jeb, you've got, you've got more flight crew experience for, uh, than I do on those. What, what would you recommend, especially with, like, a white background? 
Wow, you know, I, you're, I think you're right on target. Uh, uh, if you could find uh, an orange, uh, a space blanket, say, for example, with with the reflective mylar on one side and the international orange on the other side, that would be ideal. Um, you know, make sure your ELT is working. Carry yep. some carry some flares or some uh, some light sticks or something like that that uh, you know you can you can send up. Um, Little signal mirror is a real inexpensive, yeah, light, si- and si- compact. Signal mirror is very good for signaling to, to the aircraft uh, out looking for you. Um, <laughs> keep it simple. Uh, well, make sure your cell phone works. Make sure your cell phone is, 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 is a charged battery. Um, carry a handheld radio for, you know, you, you carry one anyway for hopefully, you know, for when uh, your. Uh, Electrical system uh, soils the bed. Um, carry carry it also for for when uh, you need it on the ground. Uh, you well, need to contact some, something airborne. There's some there's some help from technology these days that wasn't available uh, all that many yeah, years ago. That's right. Uh, the uh, personal locator beacon. Uh, there are a number of brands available that uh, use the new uh, what is it 406 megahertz. Uh, frequency 406, yeah, yeah. 406, and uh, the better ones have a GPS engine that will uh, uh, upload to the satellite your GPS lat and long, as it's alerting the authorities that uh, you you have a crisis. Now, these are going to be required eventually in aircraft. Uh, the old 121.5 stuff. Uh, the satellite stop monitoring that soon. Uh, and international standards are already re- requiring 406, and it's going to become a requirement here in the States uh, in a few years, I believe. Anyway, but you can get these small units for marine use or for camping use and keep it in a little kit in your airplane. You have a survivable crash. You get out. You set that puppy off. And it immediately starts broadcasting your Latin long to a satellite system that's going to notify authorities immediately. And they will be able to start their search within an area of as small as 10 square miles and then on the, uh, in a few minutes narrow it down to a couple of square miles and increase the odds of them finding you same day tremendously over the old 121.5s. Yeah, yeah e- ELP uh, location for the 121.5s is really, really tough. I mean, those is. signals will follow power lines for miles and lead you away. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the buildings will interfere. Uh, it's it's going to become some, something you're going to need to do. If, if anybody is, is even, you know, entertaining, I, I realize that, you know, it's not as though you can't spend money in other places on airplanes, but... Um, you know, either either upgrading now in terms of your ELT or at least carrying one of those personal units, um, especially if you're going to be flying over uh, remote terrain, water, whatever the case may be, it is it is orders of magnitude easier to find you. Yeah, what's what's going on, by the way, with the ELT uh, standards? The there's an international consortium that was formed many many years ago to. Um, launch and maintain and operate some satellites that are sensitive to the 125, uh, 121.5 and the military 243.0 uh, frequencies. Um, 
as digital technology developed, uh, they added the 406 megahertz uh, standard and technology to the to the satellites and to this mix. Uh, because of the, uh, and I'm not sure what those difficulties are, but according to this consortium, because of the cost and the difficulties in continuing to monitor the 125 slash 243 megahertz frequencies, um, the consortium is going to discontinue that monitoring of their own by their own choice in February of 2009. Uh, to date, uh, the FAA has declined to uh, change their existing regulations on 121.5 ELTs uh, and require an upgraded 406 ELT. Uh, and there is no requirement at this time in the United States to upgrade your ELTs. Is it a good idea? Yeah, absolutely. And I will probably upgrade mine as we get closer to that, that 2000 deadline, 2009 deadline, I should say. And hopefully, knock wood, the price comes down and we will see some, some breakthrough products here. Uh, they aren't out there yet. Uh, the hot lick in a 406 ELT uh, is going to cost you at least four digits. Uh, and the hot lick is obviously something that complies with a 406 standard, but also something that either has GPS built into it so that your last known position can be uh, transmitted to the satellite, or it's something that interfaces with the panel-mounted GPS and to do the same thing. Right. Um, but the punchline in all this is that 121.5 is going away as far as the satellite monitoring is concerned, down the road, um, you know, Civil Air Patrol will still look for 121.5, and you know, guard the guard frequency will still be 121.5, and um, people will still listen for 121.5, but it, the satellites won't right. be listening. So when you do those scenic flights over the White House, 121.5 is going to be an important frequency to you still. Right, right. When, you, when, you're, when, you're, out, when you're out doing figure eights over Dick Cheney's uh, uh, undisclosed location, um, um, you'll 1, have to 121.5 as well as uh, 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 the uh, number of your favorite criminal lawyer. That's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> At least Civil Air Patrol won't have to look hard for you. That's right. right. That's, That's right. true. They just follow the blazing trail of wreckage. <laughs> That's right. Look for the smoke. It's Moving not, on. It's Moving not the seen on your wing. It's the one over the horizon behind you. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Moving on. Our friends at uh, Cirrus Airplane Company had a couple of interesting milestones and events over the last week or so. Uh, Dave, I think this is your story, isn't it? I posted it uh, on the blog and uh, and uh, as, as a possible topic, and, and they kind of came separately, and they're kind of unrelated uh, for the most part. Yeah, I think they're unrelated, but they're both but, both about but our the fact over that there. they have involved the same company may, does pr create a little linkage there. Yeah, Cirrus uh, reached a really nice milestone was, in uh, in uh, their yeah. history. What's that? Well, first off, uh, second off. Okay. Uh, news came down today from uh, our good friend Kate at Cirrus that uh, the Cirrus fleet of about 3,500 aircraft has surpassed the 2 million flight hours mark. Cool. Uh, considering that they didn't deliver their first airplane until 1999, uh, that's two remarkable milestones in my view. 3,500 airplanes and 2 million flight hours. Uh 
uh, you know, by all appearances, Cirrus pilots are getting out and flying their airplanes seriously. Uh, the other Cirrus-related news was uh, co-founding brother Alan Klapmeyer was uh, recently named as the 2008 chairman of the General Aviation Manufacturers Association. Now, Gamma is the trade group for the vast majority of the general aviation aircraft, engine, avionics, and accessories manufacturing capacity in the world. Uh, based in Washington, D.C., our old friend Pete Bunce is the uh, the head man there right now. Uh, but the, uh, the, the, the board of directors comes from the membership community. Uh, the officers uh, outside the, uh, the, the professional staff come from the uh, member community. Uh, Alan was vice chairman last year. He's moved up to be chairman in the coming year. Uh, which to me is another bit of testament to how successful Cirrus has become and how seriously its its community of uh, fellow companies take Cirrus and respect the leadership of Cirrus for Alan to be named to that position. So exactly hats right. off on both points. Exactly right. Not only hats off to to uh, uh, to Alan and to Dale. Uh, but, and, but to everybody else at Cirrus also, um, Gamma's membership is comprised of, of companies like uh, Gulfstream and, and, of course, Cessna, but Bombardier and uh, um, basically your, any, any name brand aerospace company that has any piece of the general aviation pie. Teledyne Continental, like right, Lycoming. right. Textron, obviously, uh, <clears throat> with with Cessna and and with Lycoming. So for a company that, you know, eight years ago, really had not even delivered an airplane, to have reached both of these milestones, says a great deal about Cirrus and about the people who work there, and of course about the airplane. And uh, hats off to them. Congratulations. And uh, you know, let's 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 you know aim for four million flight hours. Yeah. And it, it's still kind of a uh, a, a well burned memory uh-huh. in my mind. Coming home from Oshkosh, 1994, where Cirrus unveiled the uh, project from Hangar X, which was the up and coming SR20. Yep. Uh, they made their type certificate application during that 94 Oshkosh. Uh, along with a bunch of other companies that were trying to rewrite the general aviation manufacturing business, came home to Wichita, started bumping into some of my old friends from the old, you know, established companies here, and conventional wisdom was they'll never deliver an airplane. Mm-hmm. And if they do, they'll never certify an airplane with a parachute because it'll take too much useful load, and the FAA will never go for it. And, well, and even if they do build an airplane... There's no way they're going to be competitive. So that was 1994. Uh, With those words still rattling around in the empty space between my ears, I kind of take a little wry pleasure in reading little things like 2 million flight hours, 3,500 airplanes, and one of the co-founders, chairman of Gamma. Uh, Boy, how could so many people be so wrong so <laughs> extensively. Yep. That's right. Congratulations my, to them. My, my, my point five 
hours of that two million was a real convincer. I'll tell you that. Much. <laughs> yeah, I've got a, uh, I've got, I don't know, maybe maybe two hours total in a Cirrus, um, um, but it's it's a great airplane. I, I rode, I've ridden one to to flight level two four zero two five zero and uh, uh, lived to tell about it. Really, um, intentionally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it'd be hard a, not to not to do it intentionally. That, that was a yeah. G two turbo normalized. So. Yeah, it was, it was a SR twenty two turbo from I don't know about a year ago. Um, uh, doing a doing literally literally doing a time to climb and and uh, you know what's the what are the uh, engine temps at you know seventeen thousand feet this kind of thing and and I tell you the little little sucker's a, a screamer uh, at two four zero. No, at, at like, you know, 22, 23, we're still in the climb. We're indicating, we're doing 100, I'm sorry, 1,000 feet per minute in the climb. We're indicating 160. Whoa. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, you do the math. out blue angels, right? You know? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's true. It's definitely true and out over, over 200. And, uh, uh, of course, it's, it's going through some fuel real quick, but... Uh, um, you know, you get up there and you pull pull the power back, and you pull the mixture back, and uh, get a lean a peak, and it'll keep trucking right along. You might, you know, you might annoy a few, you know, VLJs and turboprops, but uh, you know, if they can't take a joke. Well, and you know, it, it's always nice to have tra- air, air traffic control call you up and say, Cirrus November XYZ Juliet one two three, say indicated airspeed. Yeah. Uh huh. Knowing that they're asking because you're going like a bat out of hell across the <laughs> all, all of this said, I, I, I will say I once took perverse pleasure in outrunning a Cirrus. Uh, it was a 22 also. Um, uh, one, one evening going, going back into Manassas from, from, south of, from points south of there. Um, it, it turned out I was at 8,000, or I was at 10,000, he was at 8,000, I don't know, 2,000 feet apart. We're going to the same airport. He comes on the frequency, you know, uh, several miles in front of me over, you know, East Overshoe, uh, 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 North Carolina. And by the time we both got to Manassas, I was pushing my airplane in the hangar when he was touching down. Uh, don't you love when that happens? I do. I do love it so. Are, are, are the pedals aftermarket, Jeb? Yeah, you gotta like pedals. Real fast. <laughs> <laughs> I had to change gerbils after. That. <laughs> that's, but that's uh, very cool. Yeah. But uh-huh. Steve, I can tell you from um, experience and many fun hours traveling with Jeb that that's one of the quietest squirrel wheels you'll ever sit in. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> And I, and I, oh, I don't cool. really force. I don't really force the passengers to pedal very hard. We just keep throwing cheese nuggets out to the mice. <laughs> there, you there you go. It's been a while on the podcast since we had a uh, an off field landing of the week. It's in danger it of becoming has. the off field landing of the month. But uh, so I went digging today to see if I could find an interesting story and uh, came across this one. This is from the Houston Home Journal. I'm assuming this is Houston, Texas, but you never know. Um, the Houston Home Journal. Uh, the first paragraph of the story. It, it's, it, it's it's Texas. It, it says I, I Perry, figured. city of Warner Robins, and city of Centerville. That's Texas. The bro. story reads: It's usually quiet along County Line Road in South Houston County, which is why the rumbling sound outside caught Raymond Bryant's attention. Uh, he and his son thought it was a tractor at first, and they guys, guys, hang on a second. This is Georgia. 
It is Georgia. Perry, Warner Robbins. Warner Robbins, that's all in Georgia. Yeah. Go ahead. See? Sorry. So See, I wasn't jumping to that conclusion. Runner. I wasn't jumping to that conclusion. They, he, uh, anyways, Brian and his son thought it was a, a tractor at first. They went outside and saw a bright yellow airplane with a red, white, and blue trim circling over the field next to the house and then coming down for a bumpy landing. It wasn't any ordinary airplane either. It was an Army Air Corps P-22 from the early days of World War II. And uh, so there's a nice little picture. I think there's a picture from, well, I'm not sure if this is a picture after the landing or before, but uh, this is, I believe, this nicknamed Orion, correct? Uh, Orion manufactured it. it actually, right. it's called a PT-22. Right. Um, it's a, it's a two-seat trainer, two-hole trainer with a radial engine. Uh, it was uh, pre-war, or yeah, pre-war. I think a pre-war design, but it was used during World War II as a trainer. Yeah. You see Very a fair number of them. Five-cylinder uh, five cylinder Kenner engine. Mm-hmm. Um, my good friend uh, here in Wichita, Chuck Harley, has a really pretty example of the PT-22 that I've, I've photographed a couple of times. And uh, uh, quite a nice little airplane. Uh-huh. Is this, I must be thinking of a different airplane. Is there another, is there, an, is there a, a biplane mod for this airplane? No, there's a PT-19. Uh-huh. Yeah. Which is basically a Stearman. Oh, all right. What's a flybaby? That's a whole different airplane. That's a different That's airplane a altogether. Airplane. Different yeah, airplane altogether. Anyways, okay. Well, they so uh, let's see. And, I'm here, and as usual, here's my favorite line from the uh, article. The pilot, Joseph Ford, who wasn't injured in the forced landing, was apparently flying his uh, PT-22 to an air show in Atlanta. According to Bryant, he said that he and another pilot with an antique plane who flew on to Macon... All right, that's my favorite. Mm-hmm. All right, his buddy just flew on without him. All right, I mean, well, what's he gonna do? Land in the in the yeah, same field and, and yeah, risk? Yeah, you're gonna like do circles to help people find you, or I don't well, know. Here, here's my favorite part of this story, though. Yeah, Bryant, Bryant, eighty-two. Yeah, who is a World War II veteran and served as a combat medic across Europe. Um, the, the guy's eighty-two years old. He's still going strong. Uh, hey, guys, you know, more power to you. Yeah. Yeah, uh, although Bryant it, was not the pilot. It, it, Bryant was the oh, guy on okay. the ground who had witnessed oh. the... the oh, uh, never mind. I'm sorry. I, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> See, that was the connection. Bryant was the witness on the ground who... It was The airplane was notable. This was the hook in the story, is that is that Bryant's brother died in World War II after, I believe, training in a PT-22. Oh. And, uh, so that's sort of in the middle of the story. That has, has, it's an interesting part of it, but that's not has less to do with the off-field landing. Joseph Ford was the pilot... Uh, put the airplane on the ground safely. Uh, the story doesn't go into much, uh, in any detail about exactly what happened. There's something about the propeller having problems. I'm not sure if he lost the prop in flight, which that's a pretty dramatic thing. But uh, I'd hate to see that. that yeah. Be- um, but he apparently put the airplane on the ground safely, and uh, congratulations to him. And I really would have loved to be there when he first came face-to-face with his buddy who flew on without him. You know, it's like, hey, didn't you wonder what happened? <laughs> or didn't you, like, wonder where I, I crashed? Yeah. I wonder who's going to buy the first round. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> that night. I guess. Huh? Oh, so, man. Last week on the podcast, we talked a lot about uh, flying at night and some of the uh, the tips and things that you might want to consider when you're doing night flying. Dave, you came across a story that was sort of an object lesson on uh, on the uh, the unfortunately uh click on this puppy here oh it says it can't find it oh that's now that's weird sense. it misspelled the link yeah it's i think there's an o missing there i think you can there it is oh. yeah oh there is yeah this is I from can... a story in uh, aeronews.net and uh here we go 
eventually Dave will repair the link and open up anyway, the story and refresh his memory here. Well, and I cut and pasted that puppy. Uh, Interesting. The uh, story was about the uh, light sport aircraft that... Uh, well, it gets worse because that story Story then... Okay, never mind. I, I see what's going on. Go ahead. Go ahead, Dave. Oh, the light, light sport aircraft that uh, had made a flight from uh, south of the DFW Metroplex to uh, Granbury, Texas, and the pilot was returning uh, to his point of origin, and in the interim, the sun went down. Now, light sport aircraft pilots, light, the light sport license does not cover night flying. You're not allowed to fly at night. Private pilots can fly a properly equipped light sport airplane at night, but that's because they're private pilots, not light sport pilots. This gentleman was a light sport pilot. He tried following a road that he thought was going to take him back to his point of origin. He wound up considerably north of there to the tune of about 40-odd miles uh, and was trying to land at Denton, Texas, because it looked like the same airport because it was near a lake. Anyway, he wound up short in the prairie, hurt himself and another, uh, and this wasn't spatial disorientation, kiddies. This wasn't a guy having trouble keeping the airplane right side up, particularly. Uh, he was flying over one of the most intensely lit pieces of real estate in, in, in the western United States. That's the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. I mean, Gemini, Christmas, it rivals Los Angeles for, you know, having roads and streets and highways and lights going in every which direction out tens and tens of miles. So this guy got completely flamboozled by where he was, didn't have a portable GPS or a panel-mounted GPS. Otherwise, he could have just put in the airport designator where he was going, and the little, you know, icon would have tracked him right to it. Uh but the big thing was he wasn't familiar with flying at night. He wasn't familiar with the landscape. He wasn't familiar with how to keep track of where he was. He wound up short. The good news was nobody died in this thing. Yeah. So uh, I'm not going to mention particularly the airplane that was involved, the light sport airplane. It's a you know very well thought out, very uh, uh, sturdy little design. Nothing about this is remotely related to the kind of aircraft the guy was flying but just the fact that he was a light sport pilot with no night training and no night qualification uh, and the reason we bring this back up is because the same thing can befall a uh, private pilot mm -hmm. who's a long time since their last night flying or their last uh, night experience in the area where they normally fly well hang on it's a second though too easy to get lost Dave, hang on a second. There have been a few airline and military crews Absolutely. who have landed at the wrong airport at night. That's right. So it's not just a sport pilot thing. Another no, another no, point. Well, it's a night flying thing. Yeah, it's a night flying thing. Another point, though, too, is uh, a private pilot flying a sport, a sport, uh, a light sport aircraft with an electrical system and otherwise complying with regulations associated with night flying can indeed operate that a light sport airplane at night. Right. A private pilot operating a properly sport aircraft is legal at night. Right. Uh, but, you know, the caveat there is properly equipped. Yeah. Properly equipped. Exactly right. 
So yeah, we talked a lot about this last week, and we don't need to kind of go back over the ground. But it just it was interesting that there was this this object lesson about the mm-hmm. the considerations of flying at night. Uh, let's see what else here. So I found a, came across this story when I was reviewing things this afternoon. Um, our friends at Homeland Security have a plan for general aviation. Uh, why don't you tell um, us what's going on, Jeb? I mean, okay. is this a good well, plan or a bad plan? No, it's not. Are you kidding? Anything coming out of DHS being a good plan? Uh, I mean, I don't mean to be biting your head off, but uh, I just, you know, uh, no is the quick answer. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a little the, oxymoronic. Um, it's a little oxymoronic that um, um, uh, good and DHS, good plan and DHS would come up in the same uh, uh, same sentence. Nevertheless, uh, <laughs> the punchline here is that um, uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, this week has come out with a fact sheet. Uh, on uh, on general aviation, that's the in in fact the the title of the fact sheet, general aviation, and this is for immediate release on on Monday, Feb, not November five. Um, DHS has decided that uh, um, it needs to strengthen general aviation security to further minimize the vulnerability of GA and private aircraft flights being used to del- deliver illicit materials transport dangerous individuals or employ the aircraft as a weapon um what they're basically talking about here i'm just shaking my head sadly right now it's well let me come back to that point what they're talking about here basically at this point in time is a focus a renewed focus on international operations um, by non-commercial non-scheduled aircraft um, they're looking, uh, and basically focusing on corporate and business operations, um, and uh, they're talking about large airplanes. Uh, they're, 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 what, what they're afraid of is someone uh, hijacking or stealing a bizjet uh, and, and doing nefarious things with it. Um, at no point in, in this fact sheet, at no point, for that matter, in the TSA's or the DHS's existence, have they ever quantified or identified a specific threat against general aviation aircraft or promulgated by general aviation aircraft? Um, in an earlier life, I, I worked for organizations that you know were working with TSA and DHS on these topics, and every time. They would try to do something like this, whether it was a new ADIS or new TFR, a new a new background check requirement, whatever you want to call it. We sit down at a big round table and say, "Okay, folks, what's the threat? Where's the threat posed by general aviation aircraft to the security of this country?" And to this day, there has never been a real, identified, verifiable publicly acknowledged threat and you know and this with this crew running this running this show right now if they had uh, a scintilla of a clue of general aviation Are you being kidding? It'd a be threat on billboards it'd be it'd be a fox news special exactly exactly so um this say is that while i'm biting my tongue so hard it bleeds yeah. so this it's is, not a good plan it's not a good plan. Um, now, you know, 
it it's is a blue it, sky plan. It's a blue sky a plan. They they can't determine. They, they can't, can't identify. They can't, they can't quantify. So they're they're operating under the old adage: we got to do something, even if it's wrong. They're talking about you know some enhanced uh, enhanced security at fixed based operations. Now these are all overseas uh, operation FBOs. The TSA is partnering with Signature Flight Support to establish a pilot program at several locations that serve as a last point of departure into the United States. None of this, basically, in this fact sheet would really be uh, um, implemented within the U.S. None of it especially would focus on the kinds of airplanes that that uh, the four people here on this podcast fly the the light piston side of the of the uh, of the industry, uh, and none of this um, would really uh, uh, do anything either. So uh, you know, let the let the you know it's not a divide and conquer thing, but let the corporate guys worry about this. They're the they're apparently the focus of this. Um, now well, that's not to say one more point. That's not to say that there isn't some some danger from I won't say danger that there isn't some mischief coming from the DHS and the TSA directed at the general aviation community. Uh, there is a proposal um, uh, through the Customs and Border Protection Agency that would require electronic manifests be filed by all all private aircraft. Um, coming back into the United or coming to the United States, whether they're U.S. registered or not, um, one hour or more before they take off from their departure airport. Um, that's really kind of hard to do when you're departing a, a lake in British Columbia and you're going to clear customs at at uh, uh, an airport in Seattle. It's really hard to do when you're coming from a beachside resort in Baja, Mexico, um, trying to get back to San Diego where you want to clear customs. It's really hard to do from a lot of other locations around the world where, hey, guys, you know, the, the, I'm sorry, the punchline here is they want this manifest to be electronically transmitted. And it's really hard to do that from a lot of locations around the world. It's wonderful the airlines can do that because they have all the resources and they're flying from obviously larger airports. But talking about general aviation, you know, you go to the third oak tree on the right uh, at the lake you're tied down on, and oh, we don't have broadband here. Sorry, we can't do this. Mm -hmm. So it's it's, yeah. it's 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 a little bit ludicrous. Uh, I've had, you know, uh, well, the myself. The amount of extra information yeah. suddenly that they yeah. feel like that they need. They oh, yeah. Triple yeah. the amount of data points that they well, want. And, and that's a different program, though, Dave. That's a different program. That's called Secure Flight, and that is targeted towards airline passengers and crew. Uh, and, but yeah, that was it, part. That was part of this proposal to require the one-hour notice of coming into uh -huh. the country for GA uh -huh. aircraft. They want to increase the amount of data that the, right. comes in that GA manifest that's supposed to be filed electronically from the third tree to the left. So it's not just the airlines that are that are uh, uh, targeted under the extra data load here. So what's so to be done? What I mean, can we push back on this, or is it hopeless? Well, the, um, yes, it can be pushed back on, but there's nothing really specific uh, that I've seen. I mean, there's this fact sheet here, and there's a, a plethora, okay, of of um, 
wordy proposals that, that DHS is talking about here, but only a handful of them have been embodied in proposed regulations. Uh, and those are, are well understood and are, are already being reacted to by industry. Um, the, the, the really hard part here would be this, this one-hour electronic uh, uh, manifest uh, and uh, um, uh, some of this stuff is is just uh, you know window dressing. It's 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 as as a as a close friend and acquaintance would ha, has said and, and memorably said. This is all just voodoo security. Uh, it's it's going through the motions and in my mind they're doing this because they have nothing else better to do. Well, and you know you, the the uh, talking points that uh, you were addressing the fact sheet. I'm sorry, yeah. I wouldn't want to confuse well, facts with talking. Go go to go to dhs.gov. Click uh, press room in the upper right corner. Oh, I'm looking at it. And and then on November five, fact sheet general aviation. Yeah, and we'll put I'm a link in at the, it. We'll put a link yeah, in the no. show notes. Where, the, where, uh, there, there's one thing here: secure fixed base operators. Mm-hmm. And it goes on to talk about how DSA TSA is developing in close coordination with the industry a program in which overseas FBOs voluntary, voluntarily provide additional security for flights inbound to the United States. And as you said, it would s- establish pilot program at locations that serve as last point of departure into the United States. So I want to know when Anchorage, Alaska. <laughs> became not part of the United States because it says in the last sentence of this graph, it is DHS's goal to have Anchorage, Alaska and Shannon, <laughs> Ireland up and running by the end of the year. Now, I'm that. sorry, guys, but you're either, you're either trying to screw us one direction or you're screwed up in the other because Anchorage is still part of the United States. Last, last time I checked, you did not need a passport to go to Anchorage. No, just like you don't need a passport to go to Puerto Rico. Well, we're really running past our uh, allotted time (laughs) here. Uh, So, uh, I mean, but just to to kind of put uh, an end to this, not an end, but uh, should we write our congressman again? Absolutely. Gear gear up again here? Absolutely. There's going to be an NPRM. There's going to be an NPRM come out on some of this. There's there's one out there now. There's one out there right. now. The, the comment period closes November 19. It's on the Customs and Border Patrol. It's on the one-hour manifest uh, uh, proposal. Uh, there's a secure flight proposal out there uh, that mainly focuses on the airlines. Uh, and basically, um, the airlines are, would be required to send to the DHS everything about you, including your hat size, um, when you lost your virginity, and um, sperm uh, count, sperm, sperm. Count, um, sperm motility, and what scotch you preferred. Yeah, okay, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Before you got on the airplane. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll we'll keep tracking this, and we'll uh, we'll kind of come up with some other ideas on, on on what we might do to push back here. We're really running long here, so I want to move move along here, but. Uh, uh, any, any final thoughts on any, uh, on any subject? Any shout-outs? Quickly, we wrap this thing up. Any quick little things they want to... Uh, Steve, you've been pretty quiet. You still there? Oh, absolutely. Hey, um, welcome home. Uh, Spatial Discovery and STS-120. Absolutely. And Bon Voyage Expedition 16 uh, to the station. Uh, I watched the landing this afternoon. It was gorgeous. If there's a slot on, uh, on the very next one going up, I'm volunteering. And uh, also, congratulations to everybody who participated in the pilot competition for the Michigan Wing of the Civil Air Patrol. Um, believe it or not, 
the spot landing contest came down to 10 feet, and wow. one of the guys in practice actually landed on it. Oh, the, man. The aircraft inspection came down to fingerprints on the dash, and that's why I'm so proud to be, uh, to be with these guys. So shout-outs to them as well. That's great. That's what, great. What, uh, what was the target in the spot landing contest? How big was it? I don't know. I, I, I need to go to a squadron meeting and, and figure that out. Uh, from, what I, from what I understand, it's usually like a, a chalk stripe of about a foot. Uh-huh. Wow. But, but the, one of the guys in practice actually landed on it. And, wow. and actually, the, the, the team from my squadron, uh, Major Gray, Lieutenant King, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Burke, uh, actually won the whole thing. So extraordinarily proud. That's great. That is very That's cool. Very cool. Yeah, ha- ha- very, a lot of kudos to him. Yeah. Jeb, Dave, shout-outs? I'm done. Stick a fork in it. Okay. Thanks, Steve, for joining us. It's been a thrill to have you with us. Hopefully, you'll be able to join us again sometime in the future. Oh, you just say the word. I am so thrilled uh, and, and honored. Thank you very much. We're happy for to have you, on. Steve. Thank you. We're happy to have you. And congratulations on the IFR thing. That's really terrific. I thank you kindly. Check out uh, Steve's uh, podcast, uh, the Airspeed podcast, at airspeedonline.com or go into iTunes. I bet if you just search on Airspeed podcast, you'll find it. It's a great podcast. You can learn more about Jeb and his work at jebburnside.com, also aviationsafetymagazine.com and avweb.com. Dave, of course, at uh, DaveHigman.com and myself at JackHodgson.com or AroundTheField.net. And you can check out uh, all of the uncontrolled airspace activities at our website, UncontrolledAirspace.com. So thanks, everyone, for joining us in the virtual hangar this evening, and we'll talk to you all again next time. <laughs>